Omanjika, and welcome to the Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Tony Armstrong, and this podcast is all about celebrating Indigenous art and design in all of its shapes and forms. This podcast also marks the opening of Watamara, NGV's new exhibition. Watamara means many mobs in the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung language, and as the title says, the exhibition showcases the diversity of First Nations art and design with incredible works from emerging and senior artists from all around the country. Like me, you may be wondering, what exactly is Indigenous art? Is it more than traditional dot paintings? And how much has it developed over the years into the contemporary practices of today? Let's find out. Today, I'm chatting to Destiny Deacon, who is one of Australia's boldest and most acclaimed contemporary artists. Destiny is known internationally for her nuanced, thoughtful, and at times intensely funny snapshot of contemporary Australian life. Destiny reminds us that art can have both tragedy and humour, and I love the way that her work always has something to say. Miles, I am so thrilled that I'm about to speak to the incredible Destiny Deacon. Can you please tell me a little bit about it? Yes. um, Destiny Deacon is one of Australia's most important contemporary artists. Uh, She's been working for over 30 years as a professional artist. She's a cuckoo Arab mare woman, but came to Nam, Melbourne as a young baby and has been uh, adopted and beloved by the Koori community forever since. Um, She works predominantly in photography, but she's very much an interdisciplinary artist. She's worked in performance. She's worked in installation, printmaking. She is pretty much a superstar in every regard. And her work is all about this kind of tension that exists between comedy and tragedy, which I think for a lot of mob makes a lot of sense, uh, making sense of tragedy through comedy. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's, you know, it's a very singular and unique visual style. She uses a lot of um, dolls in her work or Koori Kitsch, um, which are kind of abject knickknacks she collects from op shops and things like that, which um, at best are uh, slightly racist and at worst are overtly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she's, she's collected them her whole career. And um, I was really interested. I worked with her on a, her solo show a few years ago and asking her about what motivates her collection. I had thought it would have been about um, kind of bringing attention to the problematic nature of the material, but it, she was much gentler than that. She kind of said, look, I, I just wanted to rescue them because I felt sorry for them. I didn't want to see these these things ending up in some white house where they'd be made fun of. And I think that speaks a lot to her kind of motivation as a person and as an artist. And she's honestly one of the most important um, contemporary artists living and working today and certainly an icon of First Peoples Art in Australia. There's more than 25 works by Destiny Deacon in the NGV collection. Can you just give us a little insight into that varied work um, that spans the 30 plus years? Mm. So the NGV collection, um, we represent Destiny in, in, in quite a lot of detail. Um, predominantly we have her photographic works, although we do have um, two sculptural pieces and a few video works. And her work is at its heart, so much of it is about Melbourne. Um, it's about her 
lived experience growing up in Melbourne. Um, it's her experience with racism. It's her experience with identity, with community. Um, it's so distinctly her. Her, her sense of humour comes through in everything. Um, it, we, we are the natural repository as a collection to represent her well. And we didn't represent her well for many years. Um, but in recent years, we've certainly turned our attention to building our holdings of her work and now we can safely say we have some of the best holdings in in the world. Um, but you know, just she's a she's a, a Melbourne icon. You know, that's the thing, and <laughs> she's beloved by Melbourne community. And we've certainly adopted her as a Victorian, even if she comes from uh, from up up north. Uh, well, Miles, thank you for giving all of us a bit of an insight into the brilliant artist we're about to talk to. Good luck. You're in for a hoot. <laughs> Destiny, thank you so much for coming on in and having a chat to us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You are such an accomplished artist across so many different disciplines. Can you tell us about your practice? Mainly um, photography and I've never sort of used expensive cameras or anything like that. So it's mainly photography and homemade video things that are about little scenarios, you know, and um, I get friends and family to act in the videos and I get friends and family to act in my photos or I have the dolls or objects or something like that because sometimes people won't do what you say, but the dolls will keep still. <laughs> they don't have a choice, those dolls. <laughs> no, they don't. But, but you've got to get them to look a certain way, you know, because sometimes their eyes are looking this way or that way, and so you've got to get them in the right mood and that kind of thing. So, so much of your of your work incorporates humour as a way to kind of almost goad the audience in before they realise that there is something very serious being commented on. How have you found the use of humour as a tool across your work? I like humour. Um, I just think things are funny. I can be a humorous person, but looking back, it's the sadness and, and the traumas and, and what have you. There's funny sides of situations, things that people remember and things that people do. There's always a laugh in, you know, and something sad sort of happening at the same time. When did you first realise that you were able to draw out, I guess, those two sides of a coin, the humour and the tragedy, and portray that? I don't know. It sort of just turns out that way. Uh, just have an idea about something and make a background to it and just sort of put it together. And sometimes it just sort of happens. It's sort of instantly magic. Do you think, do you think that's an extension of just the way you look at the world in general? I sort of ruminate and think about things, that's true, and I do a lot of reading, uh, too much. <laughs> I don't sort of consciously sort of be an artist, like getting up and saying, I've got to do some art today, and I've got to, you know, <laughs> I've got to do this and I've got to do that. I just sort of ruminate a lot and then get in a panic because usually there's a deadline coming or something like that. And So I can work in a quick way and round up the troops for posing and because, you know, they say, oh, okay. oh, Destiny's calling. <laughs> yes, yes, they're not, they're not keen, but, you know, you give them feed and stuff. Yeah. Your early video work tends to mock um, Aboriginal stereotypes. How important is it or how effective has it been when artists have subverted stereotypes, particularly for blackfellas? And do you think some of those well, most of those stereotypes persist today. Yeah, I sort of was a child in the 60s and, and growing up in Fitzroy and Port Melbourne as well. And 
there wasn't hardly any blackfellas around in Port Melbourne, and um, but there was a lot of um, infantry in, in the 60s and living there and um, then moving around the place. We always encountered racism and stuff like that, you know, and getting in fights with, with people, and that's stereotypes of that sort of stuff happening and being called these names, Blackie and, you know, Black Sea, and that's why... I, I took the sea out of black. Yeah, I know. I wanted to ask you about that. Well, they even do that on the football ground, you know, you black sea to, to this day to the, to the players. Yeah, so I'm glad a lot of people use it now, so it's great. I sort of started off the, the VLAK movement, which is a way of um, talking about ourselves and recognising that we're sort of, yeah, VLAK rather than the other one with the sea. Well, for I would say the majority of my adult life, that is how I have referred to myself when I've, when I've written an article or something like that, I've always taken the C out. And for you, being the person who's coined that... Yeah, it's great. It, it, it must feel amazing to it see... Like, like, because that is, that is like creating a, a, new, a new term. A new genre for us, maybe we can call it. Yeah. And... Yeah, and even have all businesses call themselves that, like this and like that, hey. Mm, yeah, I know, rather than black seas. Um, yes, it's, yes. It's, it's way better. Isn't it? Um, and it's even, I, I just found this out now, um, you put that into into a search engine mm. and hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of different businesses, organisations, really? artists, articles come up to have had that kind of effect on culture I know no one loves to kind of sit there in the moment and be like, yeah, this is what I've done, but it must mm. be a nice thing to be able to reflect on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, uh, it's nice to see when, if I get the credit for it too. Some, you know, people do credit me and stuff and that's, that's good. Yeah. It came to terms with sort of very early 1990s. And just so I get this straight, it's, it, it, was out, it was born out of kind of reclaiming the word black yeah. and – Getting rid of that sea because so many, so many of us were called black seas. Yeah, exactly. They've probably called you that on the footy field, haven't they? Oh, not just on the footy field. Don't <laughs> worry, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, how's your collection of Corey Kitsch here, oh. here in in uh, twenty nineteen? It's also yeah, the part of the blackness is is, is the Corey Kitsch and stuff. And I started sort of I don't know when I. Was a teenager, I suppose, um, at the markets and stuff. You know, um, you'd see sort of uh, on second-hand shops there'd be these little little black um, ornaments and things like that. Yeah, so I'd, I'd sort of feel sorry for them, and I'd rescue them and want to adopt them and take them home. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'd, I'd sort of always buy them and, and stuff. So I kept that up doing most of my life. I don't bother doing it now because they cost a pretty penny now if you can get them. Well, bloody everything costs so much now. Yeah, the, the kid stuff. Yeah, they have. Um, Aboriginal stuff, so I'm really hard to get. Yeah, the real stuff. What was the worst case scenario in your head if you didn't rescue these items? I don't know. They'd go to white people's place and might, might be um, mistreated. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Especially the black dolls too. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up with so many of them, and just and then people started giving me them. Um, uh. So I got a whole heap of them. I don't know what to do with them. Some some have sent. I've been sent overseas and. Um, so did, um, you know, go, you know the um, public galleries there, and they've sort of troubled the world these dolls. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, all off the back of being this idea of Koori Kitsch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they probably wouldn't have been able to get a plane ticket on their yeah. own. And I just shoved them in box. I got no, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like dolls. When I was growing up, um, I didn't. Yeah, I was more one of those kids that played in the streets with, you know, with the other kids and. 
come home and you know the lights went out, went on. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't play with dolls or anything, so people think I'm, I don't. There's no love there for them. No love for the dolls. No. Love, love the idea of what they mean. Um, I don't know. That's well, it's putting them to work. You know. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. They can't just sit there and bludge. <laughs> The idea that a that a inanimate object <laughs> is sitting there and bludging is very funny to me. Well, you should see them. Come to my place and have a look at them. I've just got an invite. I can't stand to, them. To Destiny Deacon's <laughs> place. I'm taking oh, you, you up on that. No, you wouldn't like it. It's another world. <laughs> it, but it, it is a powerful combination using this tragedy and humour that we're kind of peppering this whole conversation with. Why do you think audiences find that combination so interesting. I have heard you say you make an audience laugh so they don't feel the knife go in. Yeah, probably something like that. That'll do. Your use of tragedy and humour, it, it is so powerful and potent when you are able to get those those two feelings connected and right. What do you find interesting about audiences and their reaction to your works that do combine them? Well, you know, I never take things for granted and, um, you know, I never sort of have any confidence when I put a show on. Um, I'm surprised people's reactions and if they like it, that's great. And some, you know, I think, oh, my goodness, they're taking it very seriously and things like that and and I suppose it is serious stuff but I don't know, I don't sort of ponder too much on it. I just sort of get it out there and um, I like to make people think, you know, because I'm an old teacher by trade, yeah. Do you sometimes hear people's interpretation of your work and almost have a little chuckle to yourself out of where an idea was born because some people might even take it away that you hadn't actually necessarily meant but then their interpretation of the work is beautiful and profound. Yes, sometimes, it, yeah, yeah, people, um, some things that get written, you know, in the, in the magazines or something, the art magazines, yeah, God, does that mean that? <laughs> Oh. News to me. <laughs> Things like that, yeah. You just said before you you still get nervous when you put a show out. I never have confidence. I think, oh, you know. Cause, so I sort of, my, when I started um, in 1990, there was no one doing sort of photography like me, black or white. Um, I mean, black or white coloured. You know, I thought, oh, people are going to like this. Or, and then people were saying, oh, that's not real. That's not art. That's not photography at that time, and um, I just persisted with it, you know, and I was lucky I managed to, curators, curators liked it, so I managed to get shown in public galleries all over the place and it just sort of snowballed. And I'm surprised, yeah, still to this day. There's this, there's this um, idea there that I want to dig deeper in and it's around uh, that's not art. Mm. Um, you can imagine a white man saying that, can't you? Oh, I can all, yeah. I, I can I, I can I can picture the person, you know, yes. kind oh. of a haughty voice. Um, oh, we can make a short video together about it. <laughs> oh, I'd be keen to. Can I do whiteface? <laughs> <laughs> oh, people, oh, we might get cancelled. Oh, I don't reckon we would. I reckon we'd have them cornered. Um, I guess to dig a little deeper, there's this there's this idea that I think is really being challenged around what is and isn't Aboriginal art. Mm. How have you seen? being involved in the art world for as long as you have. How have you seen that conversation develop and grow? Oh, there's just, it's, it's just sort of snowballed. Um, Indigenous art since uh, First Nation art, Aboriginal art, since uh, uh, I started. Um, yeah, because, um, I don't know, more people are just doing it. 
I don't know if they're making money out of it. Some do, but not all of it is good. Um, <laughs> but, like anything. Yeah. Um, I'm a judge, but yeah, Aboriginal art is, 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 I don't know, it just seems to be everywhere now. Uh, I think it's fantastic, particularly this um, idea that Aboriginal art can be just by a black fellow. It doesn't have to necessarily be a style. Yeah. Um, and, and lots of people are taken in so many different directions. Yeah. Well, the young ones come on an old duck now. They're really coming up with really different sorts of mediums and stuff, you know, with, with the installations particularly and videos and, and things. Oh, it's amazing what they do today. Kids have got it so easy compared to my days. With all the different um, tools and, and ways they can yeah. make things happen. It's, it's great, yeah. You have worked with so many renowned Australian artists. Yeah, um, well, they've worked with me too. Yeah, you're... <laughs> Well, I suppose like in your videos and um, and the like, how do you find, um, because we touched on earlier, the dolls will do exactly what you want. Um, how do you find um, directing your friends and um, um, and family and stuff? I try to be nice to them. Try? Like sweet, sweet, sweet talk to them. And, um, yeah, and, and I've set up conditions for them. But everything's, everything's nice and they're used to it now. That they don't, yeah, but it's trouble to round them up at the right time because usually I'm in a panic and they've got to be ready, this, you know. They've got to be like this week, you know, and that kind of thing. But, um, no, they're pretty good because they're family and friends anyway. Who else would do it for me? Yeah. And from a deadline point of view, uh, that's a that's a dirty word. I, I get scared of deadlines. Um, are you someone who once the deadline is sort of right there looming, that's when everything oh, yeah. tends to fall into place? Yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got, I've got sort of two deadlines at the moment, one for the Sydney Biennale, uh, um, but that's my third Biennale, but um, I'm thinking about things and getting together. And But um, people want to know what you're doing and this, that's, it'll be all right on the night, you know what I mean? And I've got another one for um, in Paris, it's sort of got to be done soon too. So I'm just sort of thinking about still ruminating, but I'll get it done. So I've just got to, I don't know, get in the mood to do it. I love that level of trust you have in yourself. I do have to. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and they'll ring up and they'll say, and I said, let me do the panicking. <laughs> I'm panicking for 10 people over here. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, but I, I always deliver. I always deliver. Most, most curators know me by now that, uh, yeah, so they're sort of used to the way I work. Yeah. And don't, you know, aren't on me back as much as I used to be. Destiny, um, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and have a chat on a podcast that apparently no one's no. Th- that no one listens to. Oh, I listen to these. Do you? Yeah, they're great. Gracious. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll listen to this one because you're on it. Oh, um, I don't know. But um, no, I really appreciate you coming through. Oh, thanks for being nice. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast takes place. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and to Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. Thanks for joining me today to learn more about Indigenous art. In the next episode, I'll be chatting to artists Tony Albert and Kimon Williams about their work. Make sure that you get down to the Ian Potter Centre, NGV Australia, 
to see the Watamurra exhibition and the NGV's permanent collection of Australian and Indigenous art and design. The exhibition and the collection are completely free and open all year round. See you there.